0: lesson this morning is taken from Acts chapter 4. Here in Acts chapter 4, we come on board. John were on their way to the temple and they saw a man who had been blind from birth and they healed him and for it they got themselves into some trouble. Acts chapter 4. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and Being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's go before our Lord in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. They weren't really that bad. I mean, they really couldn't be as bad as people make them out to be, right? I mean, sure, some of them, well, actually, all of them denied Christ's resurrection Some of them denied that there would be any resurrection for people ever. And those left who said there may be a resurrection for some people someday, well, said it was because of their moral deeds, their good deeds that they did. And sure, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, called them some pretty vicious name. He called them snakes and fakes, hypocrites and blind guides. But I mean, come on, they weren't that bad, were they? Okay, I'm being a little bit facetious, right? Um, I'm talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I'm saying they weren't that bad because we need to understand this. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they weren't intent on doing evil, on doing sin. No, They were, they were good people. They looked good. They had good families. They had good jobs. They did good for their community, and they did good things to their neighbor. So what was their problem? Well, you know, they killed God's kid. We're here in Acts chapter 4, but the last time that we saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the group of men that made up the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court of ancient Israel, the last time we saw them was in Matthew chapter 27 and 28 where they stood before Pontius Pilate and Jesus Christ and shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And then they added it. Let his blood be on us and our children. We see in Matthew chapter 28, the Pharisees and the Sadducees go to Pontius Pilate and ask if they could put one of their guards in front of Jesus' tomb because why? Well, they wanted to make sure that he was good and dead. But what do we see happens? Oh, we see the Pharisees and Sadducees paying off their own guard, bribing him because, well, it ate at them. It bothered them that what the guard said might be true. What Jesus promised, what Jesus proclaimed might happen, that he would actually rise from the dead, that he would be resurrected, or it might actually be true. And they couldn't have that. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees killed Jesus Christ of Nazareth because he went against their religion. He went against what they thought made them right with God, and that was a pursuit of perfection, a passionate pursuit of keeping the law perfectly, to a T. Oh, and anything that threatened that way of living needed to be eliminated. And so they killed Jesus Christ. And they put the same men, the same men that put Jesus on trial, put Peter and John on trial. Why? Because they preached Jesus Christ. They proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, here in 2017, we men and women who read the Bible, we tend to hate on the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? We give them kind of a bad rap, right? Because we get some things that they don't. We understand a few things that, well, the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't. Specifically, we understand a couple things about the law. And I'm talking about God's law, capital L law. If you're following along on the sermon guide in your worship folder today, that's our first fill in the blank. Right? The capital L law or God's law is God's commands found in his word. And we know, actually just like the Pharisees know, that God's word makes some very specific commands and demands. You shall have No other gods. You shall remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You shall not murder. You shall not covet. Right? We know that this is what God's law says and God's word. And because it's God's word, we know it's perfect. But something we understand that perhaps the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't is, well, while God's law is perfect, we aren't. And the law acts as a mirror. It shows us our sin. Because it shows us that I don't keep God's commands. It shows me my imperfection and it shows me my morality because we know, Scripture says, the wages of sin is death. And so we know what the Pharisees didn't know and that is that we cannot be saved by keeping God's law. You now, People who go to church like me and you, people who study the Reformation and what it's about, we understand that that's why we needed grace. Well, that's why we needed God's love. That's why we need faith, to save us. Because it's not about our dutiful keeping of the third commandment, of going to church all the time that saves us. No, it's it's what God gives us at church. His love, his peace, and his forgiveness. We know it's not our good character that saves us. It's our good and gracious God who loves us and saves us for that reason alone. But what we often miss is that while it isn't the capital L law that has a force on some people, well, there's another type of law that scripture speaks about that also works in us. And that is the small L law found in people's consciousness and it's found in our heads, in our hearts. The Bible talks about this type of law too, right? Hebrews talks about the law being written on our hearts and on our minds. What I'm talking about is not the commands, the oughts and the ought-nots found in Scripture, but the law that's inside of us, that's written in people, whether you are religious or not religious. Martin Luther said the, the law is the constant companion in our conscience. It's always there. It's always with us. It's like the air that we breathe. But one thing that's different about this law from God's law, capital L law, is that the small l law isn't perfect. Our conscious doesn't work like Jiminy Cricket says it does, where we always let our conscious be our guide. Now, It doesn't work that way because it lies to us. Just like the classic cartoon where we have the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder, we know that our conscience is supposed to work like this. It's supposed to tell us some basic things killing is bad, sleeping with someone who's not your spouse is wrong, lying is wrong. But while the conscience tells us that we shouldn't steal, well, there's also a voice that says, no you can take that. You've earned it. And, and plus, no, no one's going to miss it, right? And so often, we listen to that voice. Our conscience tells us that, that it's good to tell the truth, to be honest. That's noble. But then there's another voice that says, oh no, people are going to think less of you if you are honest in this situation. If you, if you actually tell the truth, People are going to look down on you. So tell a lie. People might even think you're funny and respect you some more. And so we do it. The law, the small l law, is as common as the air that we breathe. It's always with us. And yet, it's not perfect. It's not an objective truth like God's law. In fact, oftentimes the law The small-l law is in our minds and in our minds alone, and it makes up rules. The constant voice of the law is all too familiar. It emphasizes, well, that to get approval, you have to achieve. To be beloved, behavior matters. You have to climb the ladder or else. Now, Christians like you and me who go to church here in 2017, we aren't walking around like the Pharisees and Sadducees with a big rule book and saying, thus says the Lord, this is what we need to do. But equally, we are influenced by the small L law, the conscience, that is just as present as the air we breathe and just as much impacts us to pursue perfection just like the Pharisees and Sadducees. The University of Pennsylvania, just a few years back, had a mental health crisis on campus. Following a number of suicides, the university reached out to a a task force to study why it was that this was occurring and and what is the overall um, mental health state of students on this campus. This is what the task force found. Here's their report. They said that the pressures engendered by the perception that one has to be perfect in every academic, co-curricular, and social endeavor can lead to stress, and in some cases, distress. In turn, distress can manifest itself as demoralization, alienation, or conditions like anxiety or depression. For some students, this can lead to suicide. You see, The ruthlessness, the constantness of the small L law is a silent force that isn't unique to just college students. It's an influence on on people everywhere that says performance matters, that you need to justify your existence. You need to make a difference in this world. You need to be accepted. Well, it's, it's the same reason why the person who goes out shopping on Good Friday, or Black Friday, excuse me, it's the, it's the reason that a person like that who hasn't been to church for a number of years, who doesn't really even remember what the Ten Commandments are, still feels the law spoken to them by Fifth Avenue, Madison Avenue, the media, and advertisements. The law that says, thou shalt be skinny, thou shalt be successful, thou shalt be independent. It's the reasons that you and I are constantly editing ourselves online and on social media to get the outcome that we so desire. Admiration, acceptance, acknowledgement. It's the reason we ask each other, how you doing? And we say busy, not because we are actually busy, but because busyness has become an indicator of worth. The more busy I am, the more things that I do, the more important I am, the more worth that I have. Can I show you something called maybe mental math? Um, We all follow this. Inside our heads, we think that this makes sense, that if we follow the law and if we give it everything, well, then I will achieve self-actualization. That is, I will reach my full potential. And we love this kind of math because it makes sense in our heads, right? We think if we just do A, B, and C, well, then I will have the personal qualities and I can show them publicly, well, that will make people appreciate me. And the funny thing is, Satan knows this about us. He knows this is the way our brains work, And so he sells us on the big lie, the big lie of Christianity and. C.S. Lewis, the author, explains this in his book, The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters, while fictional, give us a really eerie insight into the way that the devil thinks about Christians. The Screwtape Letters is actually a number of short letters written by a demon named Screwtape to his understudy, his nephew named Wormwood. Wormwood is a brand new demon on the job assigned to the task of taking a brand new convert to Christianity, someone the demons call a patient, and leading them away from God to hell, to Satan. Now, the reason... Uncle Screwtape is writing to nephew Wormwood is because there, well, is a difference in business practices. Wormwood, the younger, he, he's anxious. He really wants to get this guy to go to hell. And so he tries to tempt him to do just deplorable and disgusting sins, but it's not working. Uncle Screwtape offers a better way. And this is what he says. He says, the safest road to hell is the gradual gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Permit a little bit of a longer quote, but this is what he advises his nephew. He says, my dear Wormwood, the real trouble about the set your patient is living in is that it's merely Christianity. They all have individual interests, of course, But in this one, the bond remains mere Christianity. We want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind that I call Christianity and. And he goes on to list some. He says, you know, Christianity and pop culture. Christianity and science. Christianity and reason, Christianity and government reform, Christianity and miracles, Christianity and intellect and academic pursuits, Christianity and health, Christianity and education. Because if they must be Christian, let them at least be a Christian with an addition, well, of something non-Christian. Substitute for the faith itself some modern fad and give it a Christian coloring. Sincerely, your affectionate uncle, screw tape. Satan knows us. Satan knows us all too well, and that is that we can have our Christianity, but if he gives us and something else, Christianity and the pursuit of beauty, Christianity and the pursuit of friends, Christianity and enjoyment, Christianity and a reputation, that if he gives us a passionate pursuit for these things? Well, it'll distract us from the main thing. And something funny happens when we pursue these things. We eventually get them. But they're never enough. They're never truly fulfilling. What we find out is that while we think the law plus everything gives us fulfillment, makes us self-actualize, the truth is the law plus everything really equals nothing. How else can you explain that the most successful, achieving people find more, not less pressure, to succeed? How else is it that social scientists tell us that the more time we spend on social media, well, the happier we perceive others to be and the more miserable we ourselves become? Why is it that it is bogusness around busyness? Well, it's because any law-based barometer of self-worth, whether it is intellect, whether it is popularity, whether it is power, whether it is financial gain, for all of these things, there's never a thing such as enough. John D. Rockefeller, considered um, the most wealthy man in modern times, the first American billionaire, was once asked by a reporter, How much money is enough? His reply? Just a little bit more. So how about you? How's your bank account? Or could you use just a little bit more? How about your cupboards or your closets? Are they full? Or could you use just a little bit more? How about the respect, the admiration, the love that you have from your family and your friends, from your from your faith family here at church. Is that enough? Or could you use just a little bit more? How about the amount of blessings you enjoy living in this country? Not only just food and clothing and shelter, but the forms of entertainment that you have, the the comforts that you have, the hobbies that you enjoy. Are those enough? Or could you use just a little bit more? You see, we choose a life of scarcity. That is, always trying to get more. Always trying to get more, and when we have what we wanted, we want more of it, because the alternative to scarcity, well, is actually scary. The alternative to admitting that the law, plus giving it our all and giving it everything, and we still end up with nothing, was rather scary. Because it's scary to look in the mirror and say, the fact that I've done everything that my conscience tells me and drives me to do, I'm still not who I want to be. It's never enough. I don't know. Maybe that's why there's such an obsession from Hollywood and from people in America and really people worldwide with the superhero genre I don't know, maybe you're a fan or maybe personally you're not such a fan of this genre, but you have to admit when, when the top 10 from 2016 and 2017, over 50% of the movies are of the superhero genre and not but one of the movies in the top 20 from two years is mildly set. In reality, well, we might have evidence into the subconscious of people that we need help. We need someone with superhero uh, abilities to save us. We need someone who can do more than what we're capable of doing, of helping us. Could the reason be that Wolverine's abilities to heal are so captivating because there really is someone who can and has healed us, who has bound up all our broken wounds? Could it be that the fact that Superwoman can speak in any language is something that we find so compelling because there really is someone who loves and can speak to all people and who always understands me? Could it be that Superman's ability to fly and go anywhere and be anywhere is because there really is somewhere who can and who will never leave me or forsake me and who is always with me? Could, could Hulk's strength be so compelling because there really is someone who can move mountains and who has broken the chains of death, which had a hold on me? Could the reason be that the Pharisees and the Sadducees asked Peter and John, by what power and by whose name do you do these things? Because they realize that there must be a power. There must be someone capable of healing, capable of saving that's not us. When the Sanhedrin asked Peter and John that question, this is is the answer they gave. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called into account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The name is Jesus. The name that is above all names is Jesus. It took someone who was truly human, yet truly God, full God, yet full human, to rescue us from the captivity that we were in. To take us out of that dominating force of the obsession of the flesh with the law and truly fulfill us, truly make us whole, and give us everything that we could ever need. Salvation, redemption, forgiveness, life. They are yours and they're yours because of Christ, because of Jesus alone and there is none other. And that thought that Jesus plus nothing is what it takes, well, that's scary. That's a thought that unsettles people. Jesus' own words in John chapter 14 that I am the way and there is no one besides me. There is no other way to God except for me Well, that scares people. Amazing grace, the idea of grace alone unsettles people because it absolutely and totally removes me and you from the equation. There is nothing that I can add to my salvation. There is nothing that no one can add to my salvation. It's Christ alone. All All other ways are simply lies. It's simply Satan spraying the mist on the windshield of life, trying to get us focused off of what's in front of us, trying to obscure Christ and Christ alone and getting us to take a left or a right or another way. But a part of solus Christus is a rejection of anything besides Christ. Christ alone means that I am saying no to any work system and day by day by day saying yes to something that is completely unfathomable, something that is completely countercultural, something that is completely backwards, something that is completely difficult for me to wrap my head around. And that's that I have a savior, that I have a superhero who didn't come with a display of strength or wielding a sword, wearing a cape or fitting nicely into spandex. But I have a savior who came in the form of a lamb. A lamb who is sacrificed for me what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are stills when striving cease my comforter my all in all here in the love of christ i stand perhaps my favorite line from that hymn that we just sang in christ alone comes at the end of the first verse where it says what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are stills when my fears and your fears, my fears that I am not enough, that, that someday I'm going to be found out a fraud, that my fears that I'm a loser, that I'm, I'm worthless, they are completely and utterly stopped in Christ. My strivings, my strivings to be younger, my strong, strivings to be more in shape, my strivings to be in Christ. In Christ alone, the paradox of the gospel is found that when I am weak, then I am strong. When my si- strivings cease, then I increase. It's only in Christ. Can I give you one more, one more hymn verse? Martin Luther, in his favorite, um, in our favorite Reformation anthem, A Mighty Fortress, said this, The world's prince may still, scowl fierce as he will. He can harm us none. He's judged. The deed is done. One little word can fell him. Um, maybe you're a better hymnologist than me. Maybe you're a better Christian than me. But do you know what that one little word is? The one little word that can squash Satan, that can completely KO the enemy? It's liar. The one little word that can completely stop Satan is that he is a liar and that is what he is. Because Satan would like nothing more than to diminish your faith in Christ alone and so he tells you the lie of Christianity and. He tells you that it's not Christ alone but it's Christ and something else to take your focus off of him. But it's in Christ alone that our hope is found. In a life governed by the law, the fear The fear of defeat and the fear brought on by scarcity are a constant companion. But life under this cross, the life under Christ and in Christ alone, we find that there is nothing that needs to be done that hasn't been done already. In Christ alone, in God alone, we are completely fulfilled. We are completely actualized or justified. And here's the best part. In that God alone, when we fail, he forgives us. Our lesson for the day from Acts chapter 4 wraps up with a rather quiet commentary, but an important and meaningful verse for you and I. After just shaking up the Sanhedrin uh, by saying there is no other name by which we are saved than Jesus, the writer to Acts, Luke, says this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This wasn't the Sanhedrin looking at Peter and John and going, like, yeah, 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 I recognized them before. No, but this was a recognition that the power, the courage that these men demonstrated, oh, it came because even though They were unschooled, ordinary men, seemingly having nothing. They had everything because they stood in Christ. In Christ alone. This painting is of Martin Luther uh, with one hand on the Bible and the other hand pointing to Christ, signifying that, that Christ alone is the embodiment of the word. Grace alone finds itself, its place in Christ. Faith alone rests in Christ alone. Scripture alone, the Old Testament and the New Testament is the fulfillment of God and all points to Christ. The reason we looked at the solas of the Lutheran Reformation, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, and Christ alone aren't so that we just have cute little mantras to remember some things. No, the solas of the Lutheran Reformation, they're more maps than math. They're more for pointing than just knowing. They're more for showing than simply knowing things. They're for you and I to know our way to Christ. They're so when people ask you, what does this mean? What, what does the Lutheran Reformation mean? What is your church all about? You can point. You can point to Christ alone. And as men and women who may be ordinary, who may seemingly have nothing, because you are people who have been with Christ You have everything. And as the angel will remind us in the next couple of weeks here, that his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And we stand in the one whose name does what it means. Christ alone saves. Amen.